Is Alluvial Plains supposed to be a simulationist-type game? I, I feel like some folks think that it is supposed to. I don't know how you feel about it. Is it supposed to be simulate? Like, is it... Yeah, that word is dumb, but... You know what I mean? Is it supposed to be a super accurate representation of what mainstream academia thinks of our ancient past? Or is it, is there more room to move around in there? When we get over Ming's kingdom, we should land near the entrance of the abandoned drain tunnel. Our ship can be well concealed there. I remember the place. Hello there everyone, this is Barney. Welcome to Loco Ludus. I'm sitting by the fire that I've just lit. I don't know if you can hear this. And warming my bones. And I have a bit of quiet time. And I think, I think I thought that it would be time for another podcast. Now, listeners might not believe me, but I have been trying to vary the content, to not only focus on the Alluvial Plains project that I'm doing with Spencer and David, and the the more general Vantage RPG system that I'm working on. I have been trying to vary the content, but that's that's actually pretty hard. On the one hand, because it really is where where most of my thinking is where most of my creative energies are going it's it it's it's most of what my brain is doing when i have the opportunity to think so that's one reason another reason is i've had i've had some really nice messages in response to the last couple of episodes on alluvial planes such as you've just heard from Joe of hindsightless there at the beginning so I'd like to take a bit of time to respond to them but first what I wanted to do was to say that I went for a walk this morning. I didn't have to go to work early and so I decided to go for a good old power walk. I can't go swimming in any lakes, it's too cold now, but I decided to go for a pacey walk so I walked up to my local lake, a small lake, and I 
walked around the lake and I tried to hug the lake as close as possible to stay as close to it and it's got reeds all around it and that that was that that I feel took me somewhere somewhere in the direction of the alluvial plains and in particular the 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 scenario that I've been running a lot of lately, the causeway, which is set on a marsh and a lake. And so I decided to take that path. And a couple of things, a couple of things struck me or happened or whatever. The first thing I think was that some areas of land, some of the you know some of the 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 flat grass areas beside the lake beside the reeds, I think in summer are much more marshy and muddy and difficult to move over. But now, in winter, when there's heavy frost around, it makes the land much more solid, much much easier to walk over. And so I was thinking, I was thinking of our ancestors and, and what that might afford them. And I'm thinking about this causeway, and we know that that there that there are ancient causeways that were built, and so my thought was that perhaps there would be things that you could do on that landscape, that 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 frozen landscape frosted landscape more easily and perhaps with less yeah with less muck less difficulty than than you could at other times in the summer in the spring in the summer and maybe maybe that could even be applied to actual areas of water where there's ice strong enough to stand on so I was just thinking of things that our ancestors might have done in in the winter season in particular areas that would be much more difficult in, in the summer and so kind of putting putting both those things those seasons together if you like, those two extreme seasons together putting the the different thinking about the causeway what if you would put the posts in in the summer because that would be really hard to to put them in in the winter but then in winter you would go and build the uh 
the pathway, if you like, the bit you stand on. So in summer, you put in the posts, and in winter you could much more easily work on the the pathway. And I think those kind of thought experiments are what interest me in daily life, but also through the game. And I think what what all of this reminds me of, this walk in particular, so there was there was very little um there was there was very little modern uh, modern things around there were very few modern things around on this on this walk i noticed a few little ditches had been dug those are things that our ancestors could have done would have done did do um yeah I, so I, I, and and yeah I, I don't know if i finished that point exactly but to give our ancestors credit for simple ingenuities so things so things that are very much rooted in the natural environment, things that are readily available, seasonal advantages and disadvantages. Um, and the types of impact that you can have on the landscape with relatively simple um, tools and equipment. And so the other thing that I did on this walk is I I looked across the reeds, which which are you know they're very brown now, and they're taller than taller than me. I looked out over those and saw some some dead trees, quite quite a way in, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go and have a look then. And so I did. So I so I I went into the reeds, and I don't know about the ground for for this bit. I think it I think it must be relatively solid. It didn't feel mushy at all. And as I approached the tree, I encountered some of the 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 felled trunk. I think there were two or three bits of felled trunk or of fallen trunk and these formed quite natural pathways if you like and in a couple of places I saw that an animal or some animals had done a little poo on the on the fallen trunks 
because of course there's just reeds everywhere around and I got to the got to the remains of the the trunk still in the ground all dead and then next to it there was a there was a dip down and there was a little a little stream which I realised I had crossed over as I walked around another point. And it was it was a really nice experience because it it was pretty much exactly the type of landscape that I've been using in this causeway scenario. So it did it did have this kind of effect of transporting me a little bit, I feel. So that was that. And then one thing that I've wanted to do for a little while now, I've I've wanted to share two dreams that I had that I've had. A long, both a long time ago. I don't remember my dreams very often, so it's quite a yeah, quite a special event, I suppose, especially when it's a special dream. And I had the, these two dreams. I think relate to alluvial plains. They both completely predate the project, and they also both predate me getting back into gaming but now that I'm here I think I recognise some influence in in them the, the first one is the more recent one and I think I had this dream after my mum had died I can't be completely sure about that so that might be a bit of a distortion. But I seem to remember that I was travelling with her or travelling to her. I'm not quite sure which. What was amazing about this dream was the vastness of it the expanse, and the fact that I had, I occupied two positions in the dream. So it was, it was, it was a, it was a, a watery landscape. It was, it was a very, very still, still waters, a sea, but very still and there were lots of little islands and I was sailing across this water and it was cold and the further and further that I that I traveled the colder and colder it was getting but what the second perspective that I embodied was also one that was an aerial view, so way, way, way up. 
looking down on this seascape and these islands and seeing it just stretch out. And so both of both of those points of view had this vastness about them. The one having that kind of horizontal vastness and the aerial view. Yeah, having this kind of cartographic quality, this kind of map quality to it. But but I suppose more like a satellite image or something. And just this just this the sensation of travelling through that landscape was and seeing that landscape was was really incredible. The other dream is much older. Much, much older. Probably ten or more, fifteen. Could it be twenty years old? Probably not. Probably more like fifteen. And in this dream, I walked into quite a large open cave and in it there was a a kind of a ramp which ran from the left side round the back of the cave and up to the upper right-hand side of the cave. And I, I walked up this ramp. And at the top of this ramp was a, was a large bird's nest. And in the nest was one or more, I don't know, I can't remember, but a really large egg and and I reached out for the for the egg and suddenly this huge bird of prey just swooped in and swooped down on me and clawed me in the face and the force of that attack was so strong that it made me turn my head as if I had been hit and it woke me up. And <laughs> yeah, there's very little I can add to that, I think. But those two dreams have, for me, that um, they have a... 
they have a certain kind of primeval quality to them. And I think when, I, when I'm thinking about alluvial plains and the type of game that it is, those are, those are some of the impressions, the qualities, the situations that I hope that we're able to, to get into the game. So, anyway, what else is there to say? There are still more episodes half done that need to be finished. For example, the one on the Vantage Dice Pool, that's still needing to be finished. I ran the Causeway Alluvial Plains Adventure for Grogmeat-ish 2020 and had two great players, two new folk who I'm very pleased to know, Mike and Ian. And I, I hope to get, I hope to report on that game in the future because we've we've uh we've we've agreed planned that we would like to finish the adventure so i think it would be more fitting to do that when that's done it was was nice experience for me because they got further than any of the other groups who've played it the funny thing was that despite uh, starting off on a slightly different foot ever so slightly a different toe if you like in an attempt to get the players to go somewhere else first they went to the same place that all of the other groups have been to first. They went to the same place. It's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. There's so many possibilities for people, for different possibilities for the players to, to do, different things to do. They talk about doing different things. And when it comes to it, they, they all do the same thing. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. Anyway, so more about that. One of the other games, one of the other Causeway groups would like to play again or continue the, the adventure. So, so I hope we get round to that. I hope we get back to that. But in any case, um, so that would mean now that we can, we can, I think, get into the responses to the last couple of, the last couple of uh, Alluvial Plains episodes. Who have we got? We've got Joe. We've heard Joe. Um, 
and his brilliant question about simulation. Um, and there's going to be Spencer, and there's also Colin Green from Spike Pit. So I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna start with Joe. So we've heard him at the beginning asking about whether I think Alluvial Plains is a simulationist game uh, in, in perhaps the broadest sense of the word. And now he's going to talk about um, well I should say, shouldn't I really? I should say really that I I no, I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to Joe about the simulationist stuff now. I'm gonna respond to that now. I I think I already have done a little bit when in terms of the walk and perhaps a little bit with those dreams, but not so explicitly. When I first heard Joe's message, I thought he was talking about the about the the simulationist aspects of the uh, of the mechanics so so in my mind are two kind of answers to this question then so the first one about the more common use of that word simulationist in terms of in terms of the mechanics and then the the other specific meaning that Joe's using there, which picks up on some of the discussion with Tom Barbelay in the last episode. I think because Tom has done a number of simulations, you know, he he works in that way. Some of his projects work in that way, and he has done. Uh, one around human evolution. So really very interesting stuff. So in that sense of simulating, as Joe puts it, the mainstream academic view of ancient history. And the question is, do we have more space? Do we have more space to move around in the game or do we or are we sticking to that? So to answer the mechanical aspects very lightly my conception and I think also Spencer's and David's are that you, you the characters you play are quite are quite normal they're quite low powered in a way but i think we've done quite well to give them just enough just enough oomph to be somewhat exceptional but exceptional within the realms of normality. And 
and that that knocks into the types of things that they do and in a sense into the combat system which i i like to think has a kind of it has it has it has something quite normal about it um but i won't go into that very more so much more so in answer to to the mechanical aspect of the simulation there's there's a touch of it there is a touch of that but there's also a touch of um a light system a minimalist system a free form system and i suppose that would then lead into how the shamanic or magic systems work within the game so are we trying to reproduce the mainstream academic prehistoric world or is there room so the first thing to say on that matter is setting the game in the north sea on on you know in this dogger land as it's called gives us great space gives us great space when you look at old map when you sorry when you old maps when you look at maps of that prehistoric landscape before the uh the north sea and the channel uh well existed i suppose or 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 spread so far perhaps i should say when the when britain was still part of the european mainland when you look at those maps and you see just how much landmass there is and when you know the that the number of finds are point point you know uh, marine archaeological finds point to human activity you know significant major human activity in those now sunken landscapes i think a a big space opens up creatively absolutely and the impression i get from from archaeologists working on this is that they have an excitement about what is under there and this feeling that that really we are missing some major pieces in our understanding of uh you know life in europe more than 10,000 years ago you know that's very clear so archaeologists 
see that as a historical space. And I think as game designers, as players, that is equally the case. Now, if we come on to this question of... of Will it be... Will it will it stick to the 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 image that we have at the moment? I I I feel like it's a kind of a yes and no answer. I would say that we are really trying to push push that very traditional and stereotyped conception to the limit. So we're not trying to supplant it or subvert it, but push it to the limit for, you know, on good grounds and for good reason, I think. Again, just going back to my walk this morning, I'm I'm frequently struck by what what can be done in very very simple ways that that occur to one just just by by default of you know, just by the process of being conscious And, you know, when we consider how long, how long we've, we've, humanity has had these bodies and how long we've had very close ancestors before and parallel and before that still very very intelligent ancestors. You know, when we think that axe tools go back millions of years, I think for me, I really want to allow these these human ancestors from Doggerland a a a a a a kind of a full cognitive palette or something like that a full cognitive range they're really not cave people and the and the type of social structures i think would be were must have been must have been incredibly complex and nuanced so allowing allowing these characters that for me is is already somewhat moving into a space that's that's not often included in the mainstream account of our past I don't know if that's a super 
rambling answer to that one and probably doesn't quite do it justice. But here's some more from Joe. Yo, so here's the first of possibly many messages about your interview with Tom and the game we all played. And uh, I'll start off with, you know, I'm barely into it, but I I agree with Tom that the formatting of the this particular version of the rules I didn't enjoy either. I yeah, I am with him where I think four columns is just too many. I found it personally challenging to read uh just from a formatting perspective so i'm with him on that uh i I personally found the dice mechanic really easy to understand from the words like i i i picked up how to play just from reading it one time and i was like oh this this makes perfect sense it's a dice pool you grab a few dice from here a few dice from there so that's that's the first one peace out thanks joe so Joe is responding to Tom Barbelay, who in my interview with him last episode, he said he found the layout of the rules awful and the explanation of the rules difficult. Joe, of course, is agreeing that the layout was terrible but that the explanation of the rules was easy. Now, next up is Spencer. Hello, Barney. I have to say I was very interested hearing Tom's feedback regarding the Vantage rules and that your decision to format them in the way you did was because you felt that people had got bored when reading them through as the, you know as that wall of text but i have to say i didn't get bored while reading them but i did struggle to comprehend them and there was a sense that i was juggling these disparate elements in my mind while i was trying to read through the rules and kind of struggling to piece all the bits together so when I entered that first session I did feel a little unprepared but as it is with these things you do like to give the illusion of being prepared and competent and understanding what's going on in the hope that you are going to grasp it at the first opportunity and that is exactly what happened because um, as with Tom's experience as soon as I used the dice roll app everything fell into place and I thought oh yes I get this it all makes sense now so um, yeah I'm wondering I'm certainly interested to see Tom's YouTube video um, explaining how to use the app and um, yeah I wonder how it is possible to maybe explain that in text. Thanks Spencer. So what we 
get here once again is that for some people the rules are really clear and straightforward and for other people they're not and that's got nothing to do with reading ability or gaming experience or anything like that it's it's something I, I can only think it must be something very subjective the it's it's really nice to hear that the that the the dice roller the online dice roller does its job I think it does its job it's great that Tom and Spencer really like it uh what do I want to say about that? Yeah, I, no. I, the 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 key the key thing here is in this design process. You've got so many different learning styles, viewpoints, um, tendencies, etc., etc. That it's quite dizzying to try and cater for all of those different. Uh, those different people, types of people, I should say. And, but, you know, but, but still one needs to try, one needs to take it on board and do your best to speak to it. The, the, the comments about layout, I think, are really interesting because of course they're really, really key and really central. You know, they're, they're, I mean, fundamental, I mean, not central, fundamental. However, these documents that I'm producing are not intended at all to be anything like final. So it's it's interesting that people, that people sometimes seem to have that expectation i don't i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong i don't know i don't know so anyway anyway the the big news there is i've overhauled the rules document it's no longer in columns um i've been I mean since the interview with Tom if not before I was furiously working on adding in all the latest revisions and changes little tiny changes and revisions especially in regard to the shamanic system following my extended discussions with Spencer so if you haven't heard them go to keep off the borderlands his podcast and catch up on all of those alluvial planes magic debates um so i've i've overhauled the rules i've done it there's no columns in the text anymore um on the the character sheet as is there are there are the the key mechanics laid out which 
kind of, I suppose, is a re reimagining of of another little one page document that was that I had knocking around. And in there includes there included there are the is an explanation of how to use the online dice roller. And I mean, from my point of view, it's really interesting. It's it's incredibly simple. It's two points. You know, it's the it's the first screen, move to the second screen, there you go. Um which is not to belittle Tom's request or or Spencer's or anyone else's to, to have the dice roller explained a bit better. Um, it's just that there's not much to it. There's not much to explaining it. So hopefully what I've done in the latest documents is, is address all of these issues in some way. The, the shamanics system got got thumbs up got a green light from spencer so i really hope that that you know solves basically puts us much of the way to solving um those i don't know what the, don't know what the, the issues around the issues around the shamanic system and i think just to come back to joe's point from the beginning the shamanic system as is now the, the latest iteration i think fully allows game masters and players to to take it in whatever directions they want and as much as they want so obviously that would need to be clarified between groups when they're playing but i'm pleased i'm really pleased with that i think it it puts it puts that question of how much magic you want in the world over to the over to the the actual players at the table so that's that's the news on all of that front now i've got a couple of messages about the design process from colin oh perhaps i should add before he gets started that at the beginning he talks about this concept of a critical path which i wasn't too familiar with but colin tells me has to do with um management theory and that with the the at the issue at stake is what things need to be solved and addressed in a sequence in order to get from a to z and what things can run parallel and be revised and weave in and out of that process so that's my understanding of what colin is talking talking about in terms of critical path you got a critical path barney for this design your character sheets dice trays stuff like that arguably might not be on a critical path but they are things that you are getting enthusiasm for 
and it's creative stuff that's popping into your mind and i i would suggest that whilst you don't want to get taken from your path for example the core rules if if they don't get written and straightened out that will prevent the project coming to fruition and being completed the moments of inspiration for your dice trays could be fleeting and i feel like if if you rigidly uh, and stubbornly ignore that stuff i i, I don't think um that's a good idea the other thing is when you come up with these little creative things i mean i love that dice tray idea uh, i've not seen it before and as soon as you mentioned it and explained it i was like yeah that's great and really perhaps it's more important to the whole design and you just i mean i think you've got a sense of that but it's it's tricky to say what impact that's going to have on the game at large and the larger design so i'm with you i think you pursue those ideas when they come into your head don't get fixated on them but definitely explore it whilst you're keen and, and, and full of enthusiasm we talk about simplicity like it's the easiest thing in the world I actually think that trying to keep stuff simple is super difficult I spend a good deal of my time thinking about how I can make things a little bit simpler for myself because deep down I think we all enjoy a, a little bit of uh, spice a little bit of complexity at times and detail and little fancy twiddles and bits like that can be quite beguiling and I don't think there's anything wrong with it I you asked if people have experienced or de designers have experienced that that back and forth the cut something back make it simple then feel there's something missing add more on then feel you've gone too far and and this is all the whole process of fine-tuning and tweaking this is when you're sitting in your your bed sit with your sketchbook just drawing down lots of different ideas and different options different ways to do things and you, you head off in a flight of fancy and then you think no 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 you know several pages later dial it back dial it back and you end up quite often going back and back to square one and then out perhaps in a different direction so it's it's not a it's not a linear process by any means in my opinion it's probably more well, would it be like ripples in a pond growing outwards uh, and eventually like the edge of the pond is the completion of the cycle i don't know i'm rubbish at uh, uh, metaphors <laughs> but it, it is definitely a thing and if you don't mind me saying i i i have thought to discuss with you before that i think you you do tend towards as a as a designer it strikes me that you you have a tendency for, for complicating things a little bit perhaps but the awesome thing is 
that you've identified that in yourself so you don't need some wise ass to point it out <laughs> really enjoying listening to your your process of development barney i think i'm 27 minutes into your epic episode and i'm going to get back to it now thank you ever so much for those words of encouragement colin if i were to sum up all of that it's that i should carry on now colin does raise the point that maybe i tend to overcomplicate things and that certainly may be true at the same time that has got me thinking a little bit and if i just pluck an example uh from uh from my mind Colin and I both played in a game of Barbarians of Lemuria last weekend, ran by Jason. And there was also Colin's brother, Darren, and there was Joe, and there was John Allen Large, and we had a great time. But, you know, I couldn't help thinking that that system straightforward as it is in many ways and simple as it is in many ways also has some overcomplications in it and if i think about and if perhaps listeners think about any system i'm sure they will also find some kinds of complications of course there are some uh, some exceptions to this and maybe chris mcdowell's into the odd and electric bastion land are some of those exceptions and and i'm not just talking about um individual resolution mechanics or anything like that i'm talking about the process that you have to go through to create a character how complicated is that both conceptually and in terms of time. Then you've got all of the in-game stuff. Um, Then you've got things like consulting character sheets and all of those kinds of things. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that whilst I totally accept that I do and have made some things in the game a little bit overcomplicated at times and have you know rode back on them a little bit i i don't necessarily think that they're any more complicated than the things that we find in other systems and perhaps the complexity for me or the overcomplicatedness for me comes because what I'm really trying to do with the Vantage system is is try to gather together a number of idiosyncratic elements, if you like, that all link in with each other in a quite straightforward way 
and but also in a kind of holistic way in a kind of interconnected kind of way and i think that is maybe where the the complications can come from because it's not like most other systems that that address individual parts more piecemeal if you like so anyway nevertheless i take i take colin's point to keep it simple in terms of the working on the character sheets or the dice trays and those kinds of things i think one aspect that i probably didn't articulate and that i don't think colin directly addresses is the fact that if if this game is to be uh, dispersed, if other people are to take it on, then they they need to find their ways into it. They need to be 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 given given the right signposts for put for putting a game together for creating characters and so on so in that sense i think character sheets and dice pools definitely are fundamental to designing the game and as colin points out the the these 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 experiments on the fringes perhaps can can illuminate more central fundamental things i think anyway i think it is high time to bring this episode to a close next saturday speaking of um um disseminating the game next saturday tom barbelay is running a game of alluvial planes and that's a very exciting prospect i see he's kind of given me the same character i gave him in the game so i wonder what uh in the game the last game that he in the game that he played in um so i wonder what i have in store um there so that's coming up so there's 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 just enough lots there's lots happening with alluvial planes that's all i can say um i i don't necessarily have more time to run games than i already do and there are people that i need to uh to get into a game either for a first time or for a second time or so on but if you are a listener and you haven't played in a game and you would like to play in a game please do get in touch 
it would be uh, it would be great to find a time to have you in a game. Likewise, I probably don't say it enough. If anyone has any thoughts that they would like to add in, either directly to do with alluvial planes or the Vantage system, but equally anything that spins off into other directions, I am more than happy to hear from you. I hope you're all doing well and I wish you all the best. Bye.